Welcome to Conversation 360 Podcasts and this second series, Asia and the West. As with our first series, we showcase people whose life, work, and experience shed light on what's taking place between these two critically important parts of our world. We're especially focused on China, and you'll hear from people with fascinating things to share about other parts of Asia as well. Please note that the views and opinions expressed here are those of the participants as individuals and not intended to reflect the policy or position of their companies or other organizations in which they're involved. I get a lot of um, inquiries and requests about uh, people who are in the U.S., for example, who want to do a stint in this part of the world because Uh. now it's viewed as being cool. That's Ben Wolf, who knows a lot about what it takes to attract top talent to work for you in mainland China. She's managing partner of EY, that's Ernst & Young, responsible for people in the Asia-Pacific region and speaks from a dual perspective. She grew up in China, then left at 17 to attend college in the United States where she stayed, married, and had children before returning to China two decades after she'd left. Bin knows firsthand the changes that occurred during her absence and their importance to China's new place in the world. She distinguishes, for example, between nationalism and patriotism. A lot of Chinese people, um, most of Chinese people, especially younger people, they're very patriotic, and I think that's fantastic. But I think there is, if they, we go down the path of nationalism, I think that would, you know, that would cause concern because that means the walls go up. Um, literally or figuratively, and that narrows the thinking, and uh, that would not serve well. EY is doing well as a workplace in mainland China. They rank organizations as the most attractive uh, employer, and for mainland China, EY, for last year, we we are the second most favored employer um, next to, you know, next to Alibaba, they are the number one favorite employer in mainland China. So it's a very, it's, it's something we feel very proud of. As for her competition, Bin is impressed with Alibaba, and she doesn't even think of it as a Chinese company. Yes, Alibaba's headquarters is in mainland China, no doubt. But I actually don't see Alibaba as a mainland company. I see Alibaba as an international company. Uh, just happened to in you know headquartered in in mainland China, so I mean I think that's really interesting um, that I I don't think it that way because I see how global it is. You'll hear Bin's perspective on these and other topics, including the remarkable shift in language from a country that once had hundreds of dialects spoken across regions, many of them not understood by the others, to a focus on Mandarin that has resulted in Mandarins being spoken nearly universally everywhere in China. So let's get started. We talked by phone while I was in New York City and Bin in Shanghai. Ben is somebody that I've known for several years, and uh, her perspective on the world, since it it really bridges both Asia and the West, should be really quite interesting. So welcome to Conversation 360 podcast in this Asia and the West series, Ben. Thanks, Susan. So let me start at the beginning, Ben. When we talk about conversations taking place between Asia and the West, what does that bring to mind to you? What does that mean? Yes, so when I hear that, um, I think, first of all, 
you know, I lived in the U.S. for a number of years, as you know, and now that I am, I have lived here for a number of years. So when I hear that, there are a whole different thing, bunch of things that come to mind. So first of all, I think there has been a genuine shift in the level of significance in Asia. So you find, uh, I think especially after the global financial crisis uh, in 2007, 2008, uh, I think Asia has become a much more central of a part of the global economy. And I think because of that, there is an increasing level of interest in people to understand what's going on in this part of the world, the business opportunities, the talent issues that we are looking to uh, to address. And, uh, and also, uh, I-, I think with that, there is an increasing level of dialogue and understanding between the two coasts, if you will. So I have found that to be absolutely fascinating. And I also think if I could add another point is that, um, you, you know, I would say you have certain uh, segment of population who spend the entire time in one place. So you have a segment of people who spend more, uh, you know, a lot of time in the U.S. And then the same with China. They spend a lot of time in China, mostly here. But I have found there's an increasing population of people uh, who I would describe with a third culture, which is they actually experience both mm-hmm. for all sorts of different reasons, whether it's education, whether it's work, whether it's social uh, connection. So you have more and more people in in, in, in the world that have a, a broader understanding of what happens in other parts of the world through their own experience. And I have found that to be really, really interesting. So do you think it's based on that reason that the dialogue has shifted over the last decade, Ben, it sounds like it might be a result very much of that um, uh, more evidence of global citizenry, if you will. I think there's definitely a big part of that. And I think uh, also the way I see it is Asia has become even more relevant and more impactful to the business community mm-hmm. uh, uh, as well as the political community, uh, you know, and I think we, you know, we can we can see things play out in front of our eyes. And I think because of that, there is more and more people seeking uh, experiences. I get a lot of um, inquiries and requests about uh, people who are in the U.S., for example, who want to do a stint in this part of the world because uh. now it's viewed as being cool. And when you look at a lot of universities, uh, you know, in the context of globalization, they have more structured programs, overseas programs. And a lot of those programs now uh, have, uh, have a, a, you know, a, a, a segment mm-hmm. in, in China. So I think it, it's it's for those reasons you have um, you have more and more understanding. So that that leads me to a question about. I mean, you obviously have a global reputation now 
uh, and a finger on the pulse of employment issues specifically, how to attract, manage, and retain talent in the Asia-Pacific region. So it sounds like you're saying that for people in the West, there's an increased interest in working in that part of the world. Um, what about, I think you've told me, in fact, that in that that mainland China is the second most favored employer. That that EY is the second most favored employer in mainland China. Did I get that right? Because that's pretty amazing. Yes. So, so there is an organization called Universum. They survey you know hundreds of, of thousands of students around the world, and based on the, the 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 feedback, they you know they rank organizations as the most attractive. Uh, employer and for mainland China EY, for last year we uh, we are the second most favored employer, um, next to uh, you know next to Alibaba. They are the number one favorite employer in mainland China. So it's a very, it's it's something we feel very proud of. And uh, you know, talent is such a big issue. I mean, it's a big issue everywhere, but it's really a big issue here in Asia because. Um, you know, there's a strong recognition that we, our success is so much dependent on the level of talent we're able to attract mm-hmm. and retain and engage. So one of the... So one we're of very the, proud of that. Yeah, okay, so I would think that um, one of the things that's on the mind of a lot of people who are interested in China is the recent downturn in the Chinese economy. Uh, what What impact did that have on your business, if at all? And did it impact at all the attractiveness or the willingness or the excitement of people about working in that part of the world? Uh, you know, I think it certainly impacted. You know, the, the you know the, the the businesses everywhere. But I would have to say, in terms of our specific business, uh, we have done. We continue to do really well. And in fact, I would say. Uh, we are doing so much better today than we were um, in, you know, several years ago. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so, so that's really good news for us. We actually continue to attract really, really top-notch people, and over the years, we have made tremendous progress in uh, in our own uh, attractiveness. Um, and really position ourselves as employer of choice. And as we just mentioned, that certainly has uh, had a really positive impact on our uh, brand in the marketplace as an employer. So that's been great, and that's been really helpful in our ability to attract uh, top talent. So, Ben, I was just going to ask you, how accurate is the Chinese understanding of the West? Um, actually, really good. I, I would say it's pretty, really pretty accurate. What's really interesting to me, Susan, is that um, the, the people here, or at least a certain segment of the population here, they have such good understanding of what happens in the rest of the world. In comparison, I actually would dare say, that much better than their counterparts in different countries like the U.S. So you are able to walk into a movie theater and see an American movie, you know, a pretty recent one. And I don't, and, and, and a lot of people do it, you know, sometimes with subtitles and all of that. But the, the point I'm making is it does happen 
they really they understand the culture they understand what's going on um and um and so i actually and and definitely through through social media there's a lot going on so uh, of course there's always a filter in terms of how things get discussed and i have found that happens everywhere uh but i think overall i think people really have a good understanding as to what happens in the west particularly in the US I would say so the other way around is 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 not so much the western understanding of of asia specifically of china is really much uh, less sophisticated i i would think so i actually think when you look at the you know the the the, the people uh, here they get significantly more uh of the exposure in in the west mm-hmm. uh and so i would actually say one of the things i talk to people here about is we actually really have an advantage in that um you know a lot of the the us if you are talking about the graduates um in a very traditional sense uh you know you have a lot of people in the us they know the us really well but that's really their experience but i and, and yes they read on the news and they hear things um about asia or about china but i actually think that the 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 other side is i think china uh younger people they not only they know china extremely well but they also know the west really well mm-hmm. so that actually i in my opinion that gives them a real advantage but yeah it would seem to me that it would now how about those individuals you're talking about and when we talk about millennials who are people that have been yeah. living in a country where growth has really been exponential has the recent downturn affected their mood at all is there any impact of that on them or is it still are their anticipations their expectations still high no it definitely has has made a difference so i used analogy you know with the financial crisis i used analogy vis-a-vis china as you know like your first breakup right you that you bro- broke up with your first uh, your uh-huh. first love Bef- before that there was such a go you know go go you know everything was on the up and up double digit in you know increases in gdp all of that people only knew one way which is up Mm-hmm. and i think the 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 financial crisis that really set a reality into people's head in terms of you know what um it's that's not that was not the, the the real world so to speak that wasn't the reality the reality is there are going to be things that are going to be slower and and there you know there's a different set of expectations that's being set so i do think uh people are more realistic in my mind in terms of what they can expect and what they should expect mm-hmm. so uh, i think definitely uh there is more of a sense in terms of you know the value in instability and security and also i think and i know there's quite a bit of uh uh discussion out there in terms of the fact that china has produced significantly more uh college graduates in recent years ever than it had historically so in terms of expectations of college graduates once upon a time um you know the fact that you went to college and you graduated that almost guaranteed you 
a really upper echelon type of um, employment. Whereas now that market is really, really competitive and you have, you know, a lot of graduates who struggle to find the job that they believe they deserve had had a, a college uh, college education. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a really interesting dynamic mm -hmm. um, as China continue to pump out more uh, university graduates. Now, some say as a result of this downturn or whatever else may be at play, that some of China's brightest and wealthiest are actually leaving the country. Do you see that? Um, what I see is that there is more and more desire uh, to get a Western education. Mm -hmm. So you have a lot of people who would graduate from high school and they would go to the West for an education. And I think there's even more uh, number. They, they would actually send their kids out in high school and, and you know, in in the in the hope that they will position them better in university uh, enrollment and 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 all of that, I think in part there is a recognition, and that's my opinion. In part, I think there's a recognition that there's a such a difference in the way the Chinese education works and the the, the, the Western education works. And uh, and I think you you know you read a lot about that and there is a recognition that the education in the, 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 that the Western style that really um, it, it's more holistic it's less focused on you know uh, routine learning but a lot more in terms of independent thinking critical thinking and ex you know, it, it develops individuality. And I think there is a much greater level of appreciation in a segment of our population here to really want their children to develop that aspect. I think that's a big part of it. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I also see a lot of people coming back um, after their education because they actually feel like they can get the best of both worlds in China. Mm -hmm. So, um, and of course, you you have individuals who want to continue on, in you know in in the West in the U.S. But you also have an, an increasing number of people wanting to come back, and um and and you know start their business you know and just really see a lot of market opportunities. And I would say, in spite of all the reporting, in terms of the China economy slowdown, and I think there is definitely an element of that. I still think there are tons of opportunities here mm -hmm. just because the, 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 the development is still very much um, on the up and up, I think. So, so when we talk about, you mentioned Alibaba, we know that Alibaba and other companies in China are, are truly being regarded as highly innovative. Yes. And, uh, Obviously, that's important because increased innovation is going to be necessary for China to uh, continue to be on a growth projectile that, uh, that, that it has made very clear it, it's intending to, um, to accomplish. So where is the – you mentioned the educational system, that the, the, the rote learning is something that doesn't exactly uh, promote in, independent thinking, which we all we, – we sort of have assumed was, a, was 
important for innovation to take place. So where is all this innovation coming from in China? Is it coming from, it's certainly not expats anymore because they're, they're, that, that's sort of no longer the name of the game that you bring in people who will then teach you the real, the ropes. And, and could it be that it is from all these kids that are being educated in the West and coming back and then sharing that thinking? Or is it homegrown, despite the fact that you're saying the educational system is not what everybody wishes it would be? Somehow it's pumping out all these graduates that seem to capable of doing pretty impressive work. So where is it coming from? I think it's really a combination of things, Susan. I think in, I think there is definitely... Uh, the exposure visibility to what happens in the world. I do think as a, you know, when you look at the population here, um, you know, and when you look at, the, you know, the, the young people growing up, they are incredibly well educated in terms of understanding the fundamentals and really uh, understanding you know, the theories and how things actually work. I actually, and you know, my, my, my opinion is that couples with it, a real curiosity and wanting to understand what actually happens outside. You have a segment of that population who actually are very good about taking different bits and putting it together. Uh, even though I do think the education here is much more routine and but you know it you know it does teach you a, a, a such a strong foundation in terms of understanding how things work and, and the different subjects and uh, so I think it's a real combination of things. If I have to put one thing, which you know I, I, I'm not sure if that's if that's even fair, but I actually think with the rigorous education system here and an increasing visibility and exposure to uh, to how things are done elsewhere and a lot of and, and also the, the ease of building network through social media these, you know these days I actually think it gives some people a real nice advantage to you know to be entrepreneurial mm-hmm. it's not for everybody obviously it's never for for everybody but I think you see a lot of innovation happening uh, in this part of the world. And it's really exciting. So it sounds as if you're pretty bullish about China's future. Is is that is that uh, look at the young and how they are ambitious, uh, have high expectations, are well-educated. Is that the source of your optimism? Is What, what else may play in that sense that the future is bright? I, you, you know, my optimism comes from the fact that China is continue to be connected with, you know, with the rest of the world. And I think that would be a very important premise. As long as China continues to be an, a, 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 you know, very key member of the global community, and as well as there is connectivity and, and, uh, and exchange uh, of information and all of that, I am extremely positive on where China is going. Uh, so I think one of the things that's going to be interesting is just to see with the uh, with the environment we are in today, just to see how this continues to go. And I think that is interesting. So, been looking at it the other direction. What are the major challenges to that? What could what could uh, 
throw a wrench into this, uh, this rosy future? What are China's major challenges that you think uh, need attention? Yeah, I think one of the major challenges has to do with, you know, it's the opposite of what I what I just said. I my concern would be an increasing level of nationalism, and I, I also, you know, you know, I know we weren't going to get into politics, but it sort of have to come into play in that when you look around the world today, there is an increasing sense of. Uh, nationalism everywhere, and I make the distinction between. And I heard somebody say that, and really resonated with me. You distinguish between patriotism and nationalism. And in my mind, uh, I think being a sense of patriotic, and I think a lot of Chinese people, um, most of Chinese people, especially younger people, they're very patriotic, and I think that's fantastic. But I think there is, if they, we go down the path of nationalism, I think that would, you know, that would cause concern because that means the walls go up, um, literally or figuratively, and <laughs> that narrows the thinking, and uh, that would not serve well. It, you know, and and I also I think you know there needs to be recognition that China is not alone. Uh, in uh, you know, it also I think that the geopolitical uh, landscape is going to play uh, is is going to have a major impact on how things play out. You know, I one of the questions I'd love to ask you is, uh, you know, we know that uh, about in, in recently that. Uh, Alibaba purchased the South China Morning Post, which has been the what 113-year-old uh, journalistic um, uh, mouthpiece out of out of Hong Kong, and has now installed a new CEO who's an American, mm -hmm. a Chinese American, who's mostly a techie, so that we can think of it as a real effort to create a a, a journalistic organization that has a high degree of technology behind it. I'm curious about what your thoughts are and uh, the ability of the SCMP, as people refer to it, to maintain this a real independence or whether, it, because you were talking about how you want to want to ensure that China doesn't become too nationalistic and that it, it continues to have this this exchange of conversation with the rest of the world. Does that, do people talk about that at all, that the fact that Alibaba owns the South China Morning Post may make it more of a, a mainland China um, Not uh, mouthpiece? Not much, or does actually. That and I, I guess the first thing I would say is Alibaba is a... You know, it's a very, you know, uh, it's, it's a multi, you know, it's an MNC, right, multinational company. And I actually, interesting, yes, Alibaba's headquarters mm -hmm. is in mainland China, no doubt. But I actually don't see Alibaba as a mainland company. I see Alibaba as an international company, uh, just happens to, in, you know, headquartered in, in mainland China. So, I mean, I think that's really interesting um, that I, I don't think it that way because I see how global it is. Um, I, haven't have, I haven't heard uh, much discussion around, you know, that impact on, on, on SCMP. I read SCMP uh, on a regular basis, mm -hmm. and I haven't noticed any change in the way it, you know, it, it reports. So, um, 
so that would be interesting to see, um, you know, whether. Yeah, it'll be, it, it's, it's pr pretty new. So we'll see what happens right. because this new CEO has, has literally been there days, but uh, uh, that'll be kind of fascinating to watch. Are there other issues? I, one of the things you said when we had talked before was that when I was talking, when we were mentioning conversations shifting between Asia and the West, that you, you mentioned that within China alone, in the, in really in the last decade, you've noticed that the, the, the number of dialects, the way people have uh, speak their own language in China has, has really become very focused on uh, Mandarin in, in a way that is the same. It has similarity all throughout the country. It, it, do I have that right? Yeah. I think that's uh, so, yeah, I did mention. So, comment. you know, I grew up here in, in, in mainland China, in Shanghai, in the 60s and 70s. And uh, I and and we learned Mandarin as you know as we were coming up the the school system and you know one of the things that um, the, the 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 government at that point really focused on was to use language as a way to unite China and really making sure that Mandarin is the language that everybody speaks and for 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 those who are and I know you know that but uh, for those who don't. The dialect in China, we have all sorts of dialect, and it's really very, very different. It's certainly different from a New York accent versus an accent from the South, for example, in the U.S. context. Literally, you don't even understand each other uh, if you are in different part of the world. So they've really made an effort to to push for, you know, Mandarin speaking as a way to really unite uh, the, the entire country, and now. Coming back here uh, nearly 30 years later, that was one of the most significant things that I noticed, that the default language in, on the streets of Shanghai is Mandarin. Um, in fact, I, I, you know, I will tell you so much so that there was uh, some concern that you know, for a place like Shanghai or other places, you know, we don't want to lose our own heritage, that the nuances that the language brings. So I think right now there is, a, you know, an effort to really wanting to make sure we, we maintain that as well. So, um, so, but that's really, really interesting. And it's really remarkable when you think about that. It's, it, you know, in fact, when I look at how much things have changed in, you know, it, during the time that I wasn't here, it's really impressive as to what, you know, what people were able to achieve. Is there anything that <clears throat> we haven't talked about that you think any other issues that you think are important when we're thinking about Asia and the West and what's happening now and the potential for um, uh, more connectedness in the future? particularly. I, I, I just think as, you know, as long as uh, we always look to understand each other, and that's where I, you know, I find my own background and my own experiences have been helpful because I did live uh, in the U.S. for, a, you know, a number, a number of years. But in the core, I grew up in China and, you know, I'm back here. So I do feel like there uh, is a good appreciation of, uh, of both. And, uh, and I think, you know, as long as we have more and more people who are able to build that bridge, I think it's it's going to be fantastic. And going back to my other comment, I think for me the risk is 
the walls go up. I think that, you know, and in my opinion, that would truly be going backwards. And that wouldn't be, that wouldn't be good. You know, it's interesting that if we just had a global exchange program so that every citizen anywhere lives in some other country for a couple of years, we probably would find we'd never have wars. I just find that this this ability to personally uh, have an experience that takes you out of your own your own country and lets you experience things the way other people do just changes your view of the world. And um, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, no, absolutely. From my own perspective, Susan, you know, I always thought, uh, you know, so I I spent. 17 years in China, then I went to the U.S., went to university, ended up staying much longer than I ever thought I would, and got married, had kids. So, but And I, when I was in the U.S. before I came back, I always saw myself as somebody who appreciated, um, you know, diverse perspectives. I was open-minded. I, you know, I, I had a good sense as to um, different points of views. But when I came back, one thing that really surprised me is how many assumptions that that I made about different things, about how business worked, how, about how you know how people went about doing their things. That was a real, real good lesson for me personally, and I, you know, to your point, that has given me a whole different level of understanding not only, you know, it's been not only helpful for me professionally, but also personally. And really understand not to judge things, but really trying to understand why things are the way they are. And I think if we had a lot more of that, the world would be a better place. I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that, of course, that's one of the purposes of having these conversations is to give some other people an opportunity to hear how people who are having exactly the kind of experience you are, how that works and, and how they can learn from it. So I, I really thank you for this conversation, Ben. It's been terrific. And um, uh, thank you for participating in Conversation 360 and this Asia in the West podcast. You were great. Thanks, Susan. If this is the first time you're listening to Asia and the West podcast, please subscribe on your podcast app of choice. There are plenty more conversations with fascinating people from where this came. And please rate and review us on iTunes. As you may know, iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more credit we get, the more people can discover us. And please tell your friends. Word of mouth is a powerful way to spread the word about the Conversation 360 podcast and this Asia and the West series. There's more information on our website, www.conversation360podcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at Conv360Podcast, that's C-O-N-V 360 Podcast, and my personal Twitter is at Susan W. Bird, spelled B-I-R-D. Thanks for listening.